You're listening to an uh, episode of Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Jason DeMarco from Adult Swim. Uh, Jason uh, has worked uh, at the Cartoon Network for many years now. Uh, instrumental in the creation and uh, in building up uh, Toonami and then Adult Swim. And, uh, and also along the way, uh, really bringing a lot of music to uh, a much larger audience than it might have gone to otherwise. Uh, artists from Warp and Stone's Throw, Ninja Tune, Brain Feeder, and uh, Jason also, you know, pretty crucial in getting a lot of anime to uh, Americans. So uh, in this conversation, we're going to talk about, you know, how all of that came to be and also just uh, the bigger picture of just uh, what it's like to have a career that is really built around enabling talented and interesting artists to do their thing and uh, creating a situation where that is uh, profitable to everyone involved, which is uh, kind of a tricky thing. Uh, this podcast comes out on Wednesdays and Saturdays. The Saturday episodes are for Patreon subscribers only. If you want to hear all the episodes of the series, you got to hit up Patreon slash FluxBlog. $5 a month will get you four to five extra episodes per month. Uh, I recommend that you do it. Uh, you know, support me, support this show, hear good episodes. Um, and also, if you are already subscribed or, you know, really whatever which way, uh, if you if you like one of the episodes that you hear, including this one, uh, pass it around. Let people know uh, this is a independent production. Uh, I am not affiliated with any uh, podcasting networks or big companies. There's no advertising. This is a DIY thing. So if you like it, uh, please help me out by telling people about it. Anyway, let's get into it. This is Jason DeMarco. Uh, Jason DeMarco, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? I am uh, I am a TV producer. I work for Adult Swim and have done so for about 20 years. Uh, and I both advertise for television shows and make television shows. And then some other and uh, a big part of That's your career at Adult Swim involves uh, getting music to people. <laughs> like, like, that's yes. the most reductive yes. way. Of happily, <laughs> happily, I have been able to um, use my passion for music at my employer to be able to do a bunch of fun stuff in the world of music, usually involving bringing artists um work and then giving their music away to fans for free um that's usually the model that we've done it by um but it's never been part of my job title it's just like a thing that i do and the network is like oh yeah he's the music guy but it's never been like an official well, how part did of you job title. tv in the first place <laughs> there's things i understand about your career but that is the, the part i don't know at all um, I got, so I, uh, went to Savannah college of art and design, which is here in Georgia. I'm in Atlanta. Um, and I, uh, did film and video for my major. And while my final year of school, I met someone named Sean Akins 
who worked for Cartoon Network, uh, or he worked at TNT at the time. And so I just asked him, like, hey, could you hook me up with a job? Because <laughs> we were we hung out a bunch. He was friend of a friend, and so we ended up hanging out a bunch. And he said, eh, you know what? When you graduate, move to Atlanta and hit me up, and I'll let you know. So not at all a promise uh, at all, just a, you know, hey, sure. So I moved to Atlanta when I graduated, and I did hit him up, and he – got me a writing test for TNT, Turner Network Television, and I passed the test. What is the writing then, test for TNT like? It was like, so it was like, um, here's an example of a promo. You write one. And then they used to have these things called voiceover credits or VOCs, um, where with the, while the credits would roll, um, somebody would, voiceover person would tell you about what was coming up next or whatever thing they wanted to advertise. So you had to write a bunch of those and then um, just other stuff like that, just sort of test examples of promotional stuff. And then I did an interview and got the job. And so I was a PA at TNT, a production assistant for a couple of years. I was there for about two and a half years. And then while I was there, I worked with Sean who left and went to Cartoon Network and he and I developed Toonami, which is a block of action cartoons that runs on Adult Swim now. And since then, I've worked in some form or fashion for Cartoon Network for about 20, um, I hit the 25-year mark a year or two ago. So I think I'm at, I'm at 26. That is an incredibly lucky years. amount of uh, job stability. For sure. I mean, absolutely. Like, that's the thing. And people say that a lot because um, Turner, you know, what used to be Turner, which is now Warner Media, is based in Atlanta. Um, and... It's Atlanta is a good city in terms of quality of life and in terms of um, you can you can your money can go pretty far here, but it's a big city. So you still have a lot of the amenities of a, of a large city, but it hasn't quite hit the critical mass where it's an incredibly expensive place to live. So people don't though the joke about Turner was people never leave because the job it, security living in a nice city like Atlanta uh, is just like nobody wants to leave, and I'm definitely <laughs> that's definitely one of the reasons I've stayed. Besides, do you sense I'm Atlanta changing as it becomes more of a hub for the film industry, and obviously the music industry there continues to kind of blow up? Yes, I do think. I mean, Atlanta's changed just because the the first big change was the Olympics in '96. That was a huge influx of business, and then jobs and people. Um, and then there, the next big wave, yeah, was the film industry brought a whole bunch of work and a whole bunch of people. Um, and then, the, I mean, the, it's just really that it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger now to seven, seven and a half million people. So not as big as some cities, but it's, it's, it's pretty big for a southern city. Um, and you notice that in the traffic and the, the housing costs and stuff like that and gentrification and all the normal things that come with a city's explosive growth, but it has also brought a bunch of really cool things that weren't here before because Atlanta was like a sleepy city for a long, long time. And it definitely doesn't feel that way anymore. It feels much more like a lot of shit going on. All Did you grow up in Georgia? Both for good and for worse. <laughs> no, I grew up in upstate New York. I'm, I'm from Albany, Schenectady area. Um, I, my family moved every couple of years, so I don't really consider anywhere home. Like we moved probably every three years. My dad, my stepdad, excuse me, was a 
salesman. He sold heart monitors and pacemakers, and his territories were usually three states in size. So he would just move somewhere, you know, set up, and then a couple years later, pull stakes, and we'd all move. So I never really lived anywhere longer than like three years, almost like a military brat, sometimes less. Um, so I, but we did spend a lot of time in Massachusetts and upstate New York area, uh, Syracuse, Albany, you know, that kind of stuff. So if I consider myself from anywhere, it's upstate so, New York. Um, what was the earliest uh, sort of intersections with music at uh, Tsunami? I think, wasn't there like some gorillas stuff involved at some point? Yes. Um, I mean, when so when we started working on Tsunami, Pretty early on, we knew we didn't want to do like the screaming guitars and stuff that you would normally hear in like kids, you know, kids programming at the time. And even somewhat now was like, hey, you're watching whatever, you know, and then there'd be a like screaming guitar. And we just thought, oh, this is so what do you wait? Hold on. What do you think is the uh, the origin point for that? Is it the Ninja Turtles? I don't know. You know, I I I mean, (laughs) that's definitely if not the origin, it's definitely a key proponent of that style but i just feel like it was in the 80s advertisers trying to make things really exciting and so they would use you know rock cheap rock songs and usually it was either in-house music or it was licensed from you know people that just make music so that you can license it for stuff and I think that was the impetus. And after a while, it just ossified into, well, that's the style. When you talk to kids about an action show, you pump it up with music. You have a guy yelling at you and you try to make it seem really exciting. And we kind of wanted to do the opposite. We wanted to make it feel laid back and more cool, for lack of a better term. So we used drum and bass and hip hop, which is what we listened to in the 90s uh, a lot. And so through the process of, of looking for that music, because there was no library music like that in, in that back in that day, we started working with people like Tommy Guerrero and Danger Mouse and people from Ninja Tune and all kinds of people. And through all of that, we started sort of being able to reach out to music labels and, and people that had music videos. And I think the whole Gorillaz thing came together because... We were talking with a label and they said, hey, this band Daft Punk, have you heard of them? And we were, of course, had heard of them. And they had just released One More Time. So like that album had just come out, but it hadn't quite exploded yet. But it was, or maybe the album hadn't come out and the single was out first. I don't remember. How it worked. One more time. They had two videos from that, you know, cycle from Interstellar 5555, which is what it ended up becoming, that they said we could premiere on Tsunami and the Daft Punk would do the ads for them and tell people to watch it, which they did um, with their helmets on and everything. And then at the same time, we heard from Gorillaz management and they offered us two Gorillaz videos. So then we just decided, well, why don't we do a whole hour of music videos? And we premiered 
we we aired four Daft Punk music videos, but we premiered two of them, and then we premiered two Gorillaz videos, and then I yeah. think do you remember Kenna, Hell Bent, that song by Kenna? Um, we showed that amazing video, and then we showed the White Stripes. I love the girl. I fell in love with a girl. Yeah, the Legos. Um, and that night was like, it's crazy, but I hear more about that night from people than so many of the other things we've done, even though when it aired, it tanked. Like the ratings were not good. We felt like nobody watched it. We were hoping, oh, maybe we can do this you know, quarterly or something. And our network was like, never again. And we were never allowed to do it again. We're not even, even now we haven't been allowed to do it again. Wow, that's a real Velvet Underground situation there. <laughs> but weirdly, I hear all the time from people who tell me the first time I ever heard Daft Punk was when I saw that as, as a kid, or the first time I heard Gorillaz. And in people's minds, they will always tie Tsunami with Gorillaz or Daft Punk and always ask, like, when are we going to work with them again? And I'm like, uh, never. They, 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 don't, they don't need us anymore. <laughs> They're way bigger now. <laughs> um but yeah, that's just an interesting thing. I think that's kind of the thing with like TV. Like even if TV, even when TV reaches like a relatively small number of people, it's still a pretty good scale. Yeah, and back then there were no streaming services, and more people were watching cable. So you know, five six million people would see something that you put on on a good day. And this this aired at midnight, so it was probably closer to three or four million people at the time. Um, but that ends up being a lot of people if it sinks in and they end up becoming a fan of those bands, you know, um, nobody ever tells me, Oh, I saw Kenna, (laughs) (laughs) but they, but I do always hear about, Oh man, Daft Punk first time I saw it. That's quite common. And people almost don't even believe it. They're like, they, Daft Punk did not premiere videos on Toonami. Did they do commercials? No, they didn't, but it's all on YouTube. It's all there. Um, but it's pretty funny that it was a total, it just completely tanked <laughs> in the moment. At what point did Adult Swim begin? Adult Swim started in 2001. Um, and that's actually the greatest story of the one of my greatest corporate business stories is how Adult Swim started. And I'll just give you the very brief version. So in the year 2000, um, Turner got got bought by AOL, uh, which those of you who are younger probably don't even know, but it was a company called America Online that basically sold uh, old people uh, discs that allowed them to get online. That was their whole business model, and they were incredibly overvalued, and this was right before the dot-com bubble. So they bought Time Warner and, and, and Turner which at the time had a publishing arm, a magazine, a music label, television networks. It's fucking crazy even now looking back and thinking AOL somehow bought us. But when AOL bought us, my boss at the time, he hated the internet. He hated it. And he had been with the company for 20 years at that point already. So he had tons of stock options in Cartoon Network from like the very first day. So he sold most of his stock or at three quarters of it and became a millionaire because it was so overvalued. And so when he did that, he walked into his boss's office and said, I quit. I don't want this fucking job anymore. And our boss at the time, a man named Jim Samples said, what would it take to keep you here? And Lazo said, okay, if you want me to stay and work on programming for Cartoon Network, I want one block 
once a week on Friday nights for two hours that I can do whatever I want with. Nobody can tell me what I can and can't put in there. And I, I get to control all the advertising and the shows, but it won't cost a lot of money. I'll make sure it's cheap. And Jim wisely said, sure. And so that's how Adult Swim started as a once a week block on Friday nights for two hours. Um, and then it just kept doing better and better and better. And it slowly expanded until where it is now, which is a network that airs from 9 PM to 6 AM on Cartoon Network. <laughs> so, but yeah, did, so were famous. you involved in that from the beginning, I guess? Yes. I had been working at Tsunami for years and had worked for Lazo already. And when he started Adult Swim and started the, the text bumpers that they still use now, um, they didn't have enough people to write those, so they asked us to step in, and I wrote bumps for a year, and we also launched what they call Adult Swim Action, so then when, they, when they were anime shows and cartoons, we did the promos for them, so yeah, from the beginning, I was involved, and then, gosh, a couple of years in, I transitioned full-time to just do Adult Swim and stop doing Cartoon Network stuff. So, are you involved in the development of the programming? Like as far as like the, like uh, the shows being uh, like, uh, yeah, recruiting the talent and creating the shows. Yes. Well, so there's comedy. So Adult Swim airs comedy, and then they air some non-comedy anime or stuff like Primal. That's more of an action show. My job is part of my job is developing the uh, non-comedy stuff. So like action or anime, and most of it's anime. So right now I have 10 shows in production between now and 2025 um, in various stages of completion, three of which are supposed to come out this year if the pandemic allows it. Um, but yeah, part of my job is, is knowing what creators to talk to and meeting new people and hearing pitches and developing pitches into pilots and or series. Anime works a little differently in that there's not the traditional American, okay, we wrote a script, okay, here's a pilot, okay, let's test the pilot, okay, let's go back and tweak, okay, let's do it, you know, now we green light a season. It's not quite that way in anime, but it is a lot about identifying talent. So, um, at what point do you feel like the identity of Adult Swim kind of clicked in, and like especially with the, the, the musical identity of it? Oh, man. I mean, so the music stuff, we I, I was providing them with music from the beginning, but they also had no money, so they were heavily leaning on a large library of licensed music that Turner had. Um, and it was all kinds of shit. It would be like, you know, sitars, funk, like whatever. It was just like, it was the same library that like CNN used or like literally any Turner network. So it was just sort of whatever they could make work. But at the whole, at the same time, I was providing them with beats from the same people that did stuff for Toonami um, for a while. And I think... So who are they, the, the early ones? Um, so the P Brothers, I don't know if you've heard of the P Brothers, but they're English dudes who did very old-school feeling instrumental hip-hop. A guy named Danny Brakes, uh, who was a drum and bass artist from the UK, and then he sort of transitioned into hip-hop. Um Remark, DJ Remark, who was a, a drum and bass guy, um, Danger Mouse, of course, more Tommy Guerrero. I'm forgetting a whole bunch of people. Um, 
but it's it's it was a regular round of contributors that would just sort of make beats and we would come to them every couple months and buy another pack of beats um and then i would say 2004 2003 2004 once the text bumps had started and every and and we really sort of had an idea of the identity of the network i then made a deal with ghostly international and then made a deal with warp and made a deal with ninja tune and we licensed music from all three of those labels and that sort of quickly became along with the original music we got the music from those labels became very much the identity of the of of the block and then oh yeah i don't want to forget fat john who did beats and right around that time is when we started licensing a bunch of stones throw stuff so you would hear mad lib and dilla um so it was really just honestly me going to labels i liked and who had artists i appreciated and offering them a sort of uh, thing that none of them had ever done before which is a way to have their music in rotation on tv regularly by paying them like a flat rate and then we would tell them what usages happened and then they would disperse that money to the artists like depending so if we used 10 flying lotus songs then he would get more of the money than someone else where we only used one if that makes sense wow and Um, at what point did the artists start getting more directly involved with you Um, i I assume that some of them were were fans of the shows yeah that's that's kind of what happened was we we started having like in flylo's case he started sending us beats for free just like i want you to put my music on tv and this before he was even signed to Warp was when he was his first album, 1983, um, had just come out or was about to come out. And he was sending us beats. He was a fan of the block. So we would, for a long time, we would just air whatever beats he gave us and he would give it to us for free because he just wanted to hear it on TV and then we'd put them on. Um, And then it just sort of 
snowballed. You know, then I had people reaching out to me, um, people like Madlib and people like Clams Casino or, you know, any number of people over the years. And then what happened simultaneously is things like um, Danger Doom happened or us doing multiple free albums. And so once artists, once sort of artists in the industry, between all the things we were doing, between the label deals and buying music and licensing music, started realizing that if you made a certain kind of music, you might have an opportunity to make money and or get some exposure with Adult Swim. We started hearing directly a lot more often from artists, never from agents or PR people or labels. It was always artists for like years. Um, they were the first ones to really be interested. Was there a point where you started kind of seeing the part of the or hearing the part of the feedback loop where you started to hear the influence on um, from the music and also I guess from the shows kind of coming back at you from the people who've been influenced by it? You know, I didn't think so until the um, ch- uh, the the chill beats that you could study relaxed to. I was thing. just going to ask you about <laughs> and, that. <laughs> yeah, and when that happened, uh, a couple people, you know, the first person to ever show me that was my daughter, who literally listened to it to study to. She was like, Dad, I found this cool <laughs> new playlist on YouTube. And I was like, oh, yeah, what is it? And she played it for me. And she's like, isn't this cool? It's just like relaxing music. And I remember being like, huh, that is very similar to a vibe that we created. And then somebody was writing an article about that and reached out to me and we talked about it. And the more I heard about those people, I mean, a lot of them are French, so they certainly weren't influenced by Toonami. But a lot of the people that enjoy it certainly enjoy it because it reminds them of that, of that early Adult Swim sort of vibe being up late at night. Um, so I do think some part of that is because of what we did. I, I don't know how much, but it, it's it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, one of the earliest so. episodes I did was with uh, the writer Ryan Broderick. And when we were talking about 100 Gex, that was like the basic idea of that episode. But he was talking about two, like two things that came up and that were kind of directly connected to things that you've done. So, you know, it's the, the, the lo-fi hip hop, uh, that you know that being a genre coming out of that kind of uh, well, you know, the, the study mix, and then the other thing was uh, nightcore, which kind of came out of you know people, <laughs> I think probably directly influenced by the uh, old Daft Punk videos, people making uh, like videos to anime clips. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. And I mean, you know, Toonami had been doing that even before Daft Punk. We did. Well, I mean, we were the original creators of what they call the AMV, the anime music video, um, because at the time we just didn't have any money to air real music videos. So we would just take songs and beats that we got from our collaborators and just cut together clips from whatever shows we were airing at the time and kind of create themes around those and run them. And then again, we found out later that we inspired a whole bunch of whole generation of kids to, you know, once editing software was cheap and freely available, they certainly would just start cutting things themselves, you know, just, just for fun. Um, but we found out later that, like, we inspired a whole bunch of people to do that. <laughs> and we just did it because it, we needed to fill time because we didn't have enough commercials and we didn't have any money to license anything. So we just had to make some shit up. So that's why we did it. 
That's incredible. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost exactly the same impulse on either side of it. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, just something to do with your available materials, something to, to maximize what you have in front of you and tell a little story out of something else. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's why we saw hip hop being such a big part of Toonami specifically, but also Adult Swim, because a lot of it was built on recycled materials. And at the time, we're talking about the early 2000s and the late 90s when we were first creating all this, hip hop was a, was built quite a bit out of recycled materials. And so we just kind of felt like it made sense and they belonged together. Jump them in like jump rope, double dutch, then turn on the mic with a thumb stroke, subtle touch, cuddle clutch. Is this thing on like the flame with Mrs. King Kong this spring gone? Sing a song of slap happy crappiness He came to blow like it was strapped to his nappy chest Surely I jest The best on a wireless mic, not an eye test Yet I digress But why stress? Try and remember when Maybe bit the tender-skinned babysitter Gwendolyn The type to hit and run and go tell a friend Word to El Moreto, Cucaracha, Exoskeleton He know, flow like interstellar wind Toe a rap, gin vibes, toe into hell again <clears throat> One, two, check, me too Loose wreck, see through your gooseneck EQ at what point do you start uh, the things like giving away the MP3s and like, like starting with like those kind of deals? And I think there was also a label as well, the William Street. Yeah, the label happened because of Danger Doom. So the Danger Doom album happened, and that album sold really well. Um, and we were stupid because we didn't know shit about the music industry, we just knew we had an album. So we made a deal with Epitaph Records and bless their heart, it was a terrible deal. And we took it because we're stupid. I think it was like, we got 5% of whatever profits were made. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. It was such a stupid deal that we never should have taken. Um, but you know, they advertised it, they did their part. Um, so that, when that album sold so well and we made really nothing from it, uh, my boss was like, why don't we just start our own label? We have, we're a big company. Like, we have a publishing deal through Warner. Why don't we just start our own label? So we were like, yeah, let's start our own label. So we, our first release was a joint release with Stone's Throw called Chrome's Children, which was a compilation. Um, and then after that did pretty good, we decided to have a whole slate and so it was a weird mix of we would do an album and say, this is a label compilation with someone like Def Chucks and we'll give the music away. Because I always was just a fan of, look, let's just hook musicians up with money. Let's let them own the music. So let's not try to own anything. We'll just license it. And let's just give the music away for free because people, people are never mad at free. So even if they don't like the music, they didn't do anything other than waste of time. We're not asking them to pay for something they might not like. And secretly, I thought that that approach would allow me a little more freedom to have music that was more experimental or maybe wasn't quite as mass appeal as a lot of music on TV usually is. Um, 
And so that was the way I approached it was kind of low stakes. It was like, look, if you're an artist you're and you take the deal with us, you still own the song. You can release it on your own however you want. You just let us put it out for a little while. We'll pay you good money. You have total creative freedom. So, like, why would you not take that deal? You know, it's it's still one of the better deals in the business. Um, and, and this so is that's also this st- is also like entirely removed from uh, Warner Brothers labels and all that. Yes, yeah. All the only thing we had was publishing. It's the same publishing that Warner's had. I think it was Red or whatever at the time. And then beyond those label compilations, we also developed our own albums, and usually it was show soundtracks. So we did a Tim and Eric soundtrack. We did an Aqua Teen Christmas album. We did a Squidbillies soundtrack. We did um, a bunch of albums, and then that led to the Killer Mike rap music album, which was a William Street release. Um, I don't even realize Which that. did a... Yeah, it yeah, it was. It was a it was probably the only William Street release that wasn't a Death Clock album. The Death Clock albums went uh gold eventually. My man Joseph got caught on fair photo. So he gotta get out of Atlanta here, so baby mama say being self, she I saw her. Then he picked up cell phone called Oh. She took him to the airport, hit him with spread, parked in the deck, then hit him with head. Count him with fake ID and tick. Old man little spish, but he hit him with fit. Hit him with a holly, hit him with the old man stamp ticket, and he went like then he hit him with smile and he hit him with wink. And Jojo hit the bathroom, Jojo hit the sink, cold water, head splash on the face, Zypod pump, snoop murder, what's the case? Oh shit, look to his left, go space. Peace guard, peace guard, what's the law, Ray? Think he had shown out in my day. Go told him nice wallets, then he went out on his way. Now it's back to reality, reality say. Still gotta make it to that side of the gate. He moves out the bathroom, clicking with haste. Listen, long line, it's a while for the day. And it's an old lady giving Joe the evil eye. Mad cause you see him cutting spaces in line. Line, 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 line. Was that the project where uh, he started working with LP? Yes. Yeah. Rap music was the project where I put him together with LP. Yes. You you famously are essentially responsible for Run the Jewels. I am. I mean, well, they are, but I am the person who brought them together and had them work together. Um, Creative matchmaker. Yeah. Mike knew he wanted to make a certain type of record. He was very influenced by Ice Cube, America's Most Wanted. My favorite rap album is Death Certificate um, by Ice Cube, which sounds a lot different from America's Most Wanted, but they're both super sample-heavy, aggressive, political records. And Mike knew he wanted to make that kind of record, and he said, I want that Bomb Squad sound. And so I had worked with L a couple times at that point, and I said, well, if you want Bomb Squad, there's one guy who does a newer version of that sound that you have to meet. And so... I had, I flew L in to Atlanta and they spent a day in the studio and did the three of the songs on rap music in that day. And they immediately fell in love with each other. Like immediately there was an instant connection. And did so you L know Killer Mike from both being Atlanta guys. No, I, I, I knew Killer Mike because we had done a soundtrack for the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie. And um, I don't remember who the artist was. We had somebody on the soundtrack who dropped out at the last minute. And I needed, I had like two weeks and I had to get somebody. And we knew we wanted a rap song. And Mike had worked with the guys from the show Frisky Dingo. He had done a song for Frisky Dingo. And so uh, one of the producers I worked with who worked on Frisky Dingo said, you should call Killer Mike. He's always got beats. 
and he's looking for work because this was when he was doing his pledge allegiance to the grind stuff. So he was between label deals and didn't have a lot going on. Um, and so I called him and he was like, hell yeah. And, and, you know, came to meet me and, uh, gave me a song that we put on the soundtrack. And then from that, I put him as the voice of a bunch of commercials for the boondocks. And we just had so much fun working together. One day he came to me and said, look, man, I want to do an album with you. And I was like, well, you're a Grammy winning artist. I don't know if our little label is really where you want to do your album. He's like, no, I do. I want to do an album with you because I know you're going to do you're going to let me do something I could never do anywhere else. And so he kind of convinced me to do the album with it. Um, but yeah, I had known both Mike and L for years up until that point. And it's just serendipitous that I, you know, had an opportunity to put them together when I did and that they fell in sweet, sweet love. Are there any less famous, uh, matches that you've made? Um, you know, there was a few, but none of them that were that deep. I mean, the one that just happened was more mother and Billy Woods. Um, that wasn't me. That was a guy named Adam Shore who helps me work on adults from singles, but we've worked with more mother a bunch and she's amazing. And, uh, we wanted to work with Billy Woods and the producer I, I work with was like, let's get more mother and ask her if she wants to work with Billy Woods. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And they ended up having such a good time making a single that they went then back and made the single for us that they went back and made a whole album, uh, which is an amazing record if you haven't heard it. Um. Black flowers at the tomb, speakers hiss in empty nightclubs, the city hums. Tinnitus, flyness on your eardrum, mosquitoes bias, sickle cell have them hesitant to try it. Solomon or Midas, assassins need tyrants, the virus, circling planes with no pilots, no drivers, trains running riot. Yellowing ads for new diets, LED displays, Price Waterhouse, come see what we can do for you. Watch your step in the slaughterhouse. Streets wet, but it's over now. Death in an evening gown. Modest heel, and he had a crown. Of sorts. Alan Greenspan, fucking Iron Rand. She came, finished him with her hand. Lit a cigarette, they split in the dark. Men sang from minarets, but we'd already hardened our hearts. Rapunzel's hair kept growing and the nails. It was quiet except the ocean fog like a veil. But there's not a lot of those. That's like, it's truly serendipity, like when it happens like that, you know? Um, I kind of feel like that might have happened with um, Doom and, and um, Flylo if Doom hadn't blown it. <laughs> I think that could have happened. <laughs> I did introduce them. They did work together, but <laughs> and Philo wanted to do way more. Um, but Doom, I mean, Doom blew it the way he blows everything. He's flaked, you know, didn't send, send us shitty files, was impossible to reach, wanted money up front, like all kinds of stuff. Doom was, you know, Doom. Um, and Philo just at that point in his career, he, he didn't want it. He wasn't willing to just eat shit to work with somebody, <laughs> which I don't blame him, you know, <laughs> but now nah, mostly it's, it's mostly I let the artist guide what they want to do. It's very rare that, um, 
I have a lot of input into their work. I'm usually just trying to, honestly, the opposite. I'm usually just trying to stay out of the way and support their work and just let them do whatever they want to do. Um, my opinion is that I've had it very easy because I've had this corporate backing for everything I've done and people who do art for a living and are really risking something that I'm not. Um, and the, not that that makes them better than me, but it does make them more at risk um, in a lot of ways. So to the degree that I can reroute some of this corporate money to people whose lives are built around making art, um, that's what I want to do. So that's been my focus is just trying to get good people that want to make interesting stuff and then getting out of the way and letting them do it and giving them money and support that they deserve. So you're a true patron is what you're describing. Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, you know, uh, one of my, I, I feel embarrassed sharing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. One of my proudest moments is Sam Valenti from uh, Ghostly, who's a very nice gentleman, the guy who started Ghostly Records. Uh, he was talking with uh, Egon, who runs Now Again, who used to work at Stone's Throw, and who put Mad Villain together. And uh, he mentioned my name, and uh, they called me the Robin Hood of Cartoon Network. <laughs> <laughs> was, so, there, was there a point in your career where you just kind of uh, consciously decided that like, your goal was to enable other artists? I think once it became clear that my best skills were as a producer and not an artist myself necessarily, I, I, to be clear, I think there is an art to good producing, but being a producer um, is usually something that's considered crass because, you know, all the producers you ever hear about are like people like Robert Evans, you know, but there is an art to it. And a lot of it is about knowing what, how to put together good people. And a lot of it is knowing who to yell at and when, and a lot of it is knowing how to get funding, how to bullshit your way into getting something for your project. And all of those skills come together in this magical way with some projects. And then with a lot of them, they don't. With the majority, they don't. So I think for me, once it became clear, this is my skill set. I'm a producer. I can identify talented people. I can help put them together. I can give them support. I can give them advice. I can even get involved in the creative and tell them what I think and sometimes steer things. Um, once I realized that was my skill set, I wanted to just do my best to be a good producer and a good producer supports artists that they work with a hundred percent. Much like you never, you know, you don't hear about good managers and good producers because the people that do it really well, they do it quietly. And a lot of what they do is invisible and so when everyone's like, why are all those producers standing on that stage when people are accepting awards? There's a reason. Sometimes the reason is because they're a fucking asshole taking credit for something they didn't do. But a lot of the time it's because they were there working behind the scenes the whole time, um, helping the artists get what they need to get. And I don't think they deserve necessarily the same amount of credit, but, but I appreciate what they do because I understand it. If that makes sense. Do you think you might have gravitated towards the same impulses, like if you had not ended up at Cartoon Network? Probably, you know, probably not. I mean, I will say there's a uh, in college, one of my professors greatly offended me because 
I wanted to be a, a film director, a movie director. I mean, that's what everyone in film school wants to be anyway. They all want to be the next Scorsese. And I was no different. And I remember I had a professor who very clearly said, you know, you'd make a very good producer. And I took it so personally. It was such an insult. Do you remember what like, uh, they were responding to? I don't. I wish I did. I don't remember. It was something about, we had looked at Apocalypse Now, which is my favorite movie, and we were supposed to analyze a scene. And I don't remember what I said about the scene or even what scene I analyzed, but whatever the result is, he told me in our one-on-one where he was giving me my review, basically, he was like, you know, you'd make a good producer. And I took it really personally. It really offended me at the time. It's like, fuck you, man. I'm an artist. What could be a fucking money-grubbing producer? And... uh, but of course, the great irony is he was right, and I am a good producer. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I wouldn't have gravitated towards something like this anyway, because um, so much of what happened with my career just was things falling into place and me taking an opportunity that presented itself. I probably would have tried to do art for a number of years and discovered I'm not as good as any of the people that inspired me, and then ended up trying to do something in the field of art that was involving supporting artists. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you just reminded me of a very similar experience I had uh, very early because I, I also went to art school. And uh, I think it's actually the, a class I took before I went to art school. I would I, I take like uh, weekend classes at Pratt because I lived in the vicinity of New York oh, City. Yeah. And I remember the guy who was teaching that at some point, like probably towards the end of the, the semester or whatever it was, being like, uh, Matthew, I I think uh, you have a really good mind for this, and you're, you, but I, I think you just need to find your venue. <laughs> and I, I think about that. That was really stuck in my head, and part of me is like, have I found my venue? Because I feel like I, I've done a few different things. I remember when I was doing the quiz stuff at Buzzfeed, I was like, is this my venue? <laughs> yeah. Because like, yeah. I, I, I fell mean... into that like in a very strange way. Well, I, I think people have multiple careers in their lives and multiple venues, in, in, like things that they're good at and multiple points for serendipity to happen where they're good at a thing and they can do that thing for a while. A lot of people do. Not a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't have that luck or self-awareness, but a lot of people do. And I think uh, just in my case, I've been lucky because my career has allowed me to do like five different things within one career. That is incredibly rare. And especially um, at the same people, company. For sure. It's incredibly rare. I mean, like I could never have had this career at any other company. There's no way. Turner was a unique mix of small enough that they were still scrappy, but large enough that they had, I could get financial support where I could do weird projects like this. If I had worked at Disney no fucking way would any of this stuff have happened. So it's very much because of the culture of the place that I worked that I was allowed to do this. And then it's also because I am a workaholic and I constantly am dreaming up new things to do and new ideas for me and my team. And I'm never, I, I never can just stop coming up with another thing that we should be doing. And if you have a boss that will support you in that, or even just get out of the way, you can do a lot. Um, but most companies don't have that. My company doesn't always have that. It just has it sometimes. Um, it's just all got to line up. It's it's very, very, very precarious. 
Well, I have to assume that you've kind of fostered a, an environment of built swim where people beneath you, you put some trust in them as well. Yes. I mean, for sure. I try to anyway. And I mean, like last year, for instance, Adult Swim Singles has been my baby. Like I've picked all the music or work, you know, the people I've worked with have like Adam Shore have brought me music, but I've, I've made the decisions and mostly picked all the artists and even reached out to a lot of the artists, like have about half of them to set the deals up. But like last year and the year before, I started just getting too busy with other things to be able to full-time do singles, especially when we were trying to do, you know, every single week for an entire year. Um, so I brought on a bunch of members of my team that were younger and um, just, you know, it was also like one picking all the music. And so I knew that <laughs> that probably should change. So I brought in some women that worked for me that are amazing, have amazing tastes. A, a woman named Laura Starrett who did the, the noise compilation and she did Metal Swim too. Um, she's got incredible taste. And then Shannon McKnight, who doesn't work for me but works with me, and she worked on singles. And she also has great taste. She listens to totally different music from me, but she really knows the genres that she's into. And so I last year basically gave singles over to them. Like I probably picked 10 of the 60 artists we work with and they were all rap because I'm the only person at work that listens to as much hip hop as I do. But all the other music was from them. And this year's singles, which will happen in a few months, it'll be all of them again, except I'll probably have five or six songs with rappers or people like Flylo that are just friends that I want to have on the thing so yeah i'm trying to more and more you know this this is part of my consciousness as a as an adult a person in the united states i'm trying to acknowledge my privilege more and more and step out of the way and let people have opportunities that i was given so that they can do the same you know or better um and i've only in the last five years been in a position to really be able to do that um, but it's been awesome. It, it seems good for Adult Swim too to kind of have that kind of evolution and sound that it can kind of bring in these other vibes. For sure, they can't. Yeah, they can't just. You can't be um, a TV network or a brand and ossify into one thing. You know, you have to change with the times, and part of that is allowing young, younger people and people with different perspectives to come in and have their say. You know, and I've certainly had plenty of time to do my stuff so it's totally not i mean honestly it's been a joy i feel nothing but like i can't imagine not thinking that way not not wanting to let the people who are up and coming do their thing because it's really exciting and you know they bring me art i had never heard of more mother until laura starrett brought more mother to me you know so it's awesome. If you are of the mindset where you feel like you're never done and you always want to learn more about music, about art or whatever you're into, then meeting somebody who has a totally different perspective is incredible because they're almost always going to give you, they're going to bring you something you didn't, you've never heard of or you didn't think about, or they'll tell you about something that you already heard about, but they'll make you think about it in a new way. And to me, that's, that's the magic of working with one generation. I'm at Gen X, but I work with millennials. I work with Zoomers. You know, I work with all kinds of folks. 
And that's the glory of it is they each have their own culture that they bring to this creative work. It's fun to think that maybe in like five or six years, 10 years, they'll just be like the uh, lo-fi metal to study to. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there will. <laughs> lo-fi noise to study to. <laughs> just like <laughs> static. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just, you know, my listening at home is still very much in the genres that we started featuring on Adult Swim. I mostly listen to hip-hop, electronic music, and metal. With now, post my mom's death a couple of years ago, I got way back into jazz, which I used to be in in college a lot and then sort of moved away from. And now I've gone way the other way and I'm way back into it. Um, but those are pretty much my genres, and I don't veer outside of those very often. A couple records a year, you know, for other genres. Um, it, it's funny because like you, you're kind of coming back into jazz just as jazz kind of gets uh, resurgence uh, via brain feeder and you already had a connection to brain feeder yeah and that's why that's one of the reasons we did that jazz compilation was just because it's a really exciting time for jazz there's so much amazing jazz coming out of chicago and then the brain feeder folks and then like not even you know and Bandcamp has allowed for so much amazing music of all genres, but there's a lot of great jazz on Bandcamp that I did not hear. You know, you do not have to go anywhere near major labels anymore to hear good jazz, which you used to have to do. Um, do you have any insight into how that happened? I don't. I, I mean, I only know what I know. The Chicago scene is all just a new generation of performers inspiring each other and getting together and, I mean, Chicago, obviously, is just a hotbed for amazing, you know, music of all kinds from 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 hip hop to drill to, you know, to jazz. But uh, I don't know why the Bandcamp explosion has happened. Unless it's just that, I mean, well, obviously, post pandemic, it happened because a lot of these jazz musicians can't play in clubs. So they're getting together and recording themselves and then putting the record out. But I don't know why pre the pandemic it was happening. I'm just happy. Yeah. Cause, cause my question is really more just like the musicians, like, you know, like you have to really know how to play. To right. <laughs> so where did they all come from? <laughs> I guess maybe the people were there and they're just ignored for so long or just, I think they were there and just ignored. Place. Yeah. I mean like Thundercat, I met Thundercat years and years ago and he was good friends with Flylo even then. And Flylo was like, Oh, let's go see my friend. Thundercat, he's an incredible bass player. He plays at this jazz club every Friday night with just whoever shows up. He just goes on stage. And this was like almost 10 years ago. And no one cared. And it was all old people at this place. Now, if you probably, if you went to a Thundercat show now, you're going to see something very different. Or even a Kamasi Washington show, which Kamasi, unlike Thundercat, Kamasi doesn't like crossover jazz. He plays like straight up spiritual jazz. And you go to a Kamasi show now, and it's packed with young people. And I don't think that would even be the case 10 years ago. So yeah. I, he plays like large venues now. Like he, the, the, he the last show he was in New York City was the King's Theater, which is like a very, which is roughly maybe slightly smaller than Radio City Music Hall. Yeah, he sells out and he does really well. We had him play our festival, our virtual festival, um, last year. But he makes a good bit of money too. Um, super, super nice guy, obviously, but. Yeah, it is very different, and I don't know where all these young folks came from, but I think, yes, part of it was that 
10 years ago, they might have been somewhat ignored. And now, for whatever yeah. reason, they're not. seems like the obvious cultural tipping point was to pimp a butterfly because those guys were involved in that and Kendrick Lamar was such a big star that it just brought for sure to it. for sure I think Black Messiah I think D'Angelo and to pimp a butterfly coming out right within a year of each other I, I think yeah and the epic I think was maybe a few months later yeah I, I think those two just one two punch and they definitely kick-started a lot of I mean definitely kick-started folks like Thundercat's career for sure um, yeah, I mean, so much music that's come out in the past few years seems like a, a direct wake of all of yeah, that. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it it definitely had a seismic impact on people uh, making jazz cool again. Let's say um, to younger to a younger subset of the population. What have you been hearing in the recent past that has really excited you? Um, I mean, I buy. I I'm still so I'm old. I still buy music. I do stream music sometimes, but most of the time I buy albums and I really enjoy the ritual of every Friday. It used to be every Tuesday, but every Friday going to iTunes and going into the genres that I'm interested in and just literally listening to samples of whatever came out. If it's not something I've heard of and looks interesting and I probably buy actually purchase five or six albums a week. Um, so it's always usually new stuff. And then sometimes something will happen like doom passing and then I'll go and listen to a whole bunch of doom. Um, so lately, let me look, I'm on my computer right now. Um, so the Dungan live album, uh, I don't even really like Dungan to be honest, but that live album is incredible. That, that's he, he, uh, he's from Sweden or something, right? Like, yeah. Kind of psychedelic metal guy. There, Dungan is instrumental psych. Uh, I don't know what else you would call it, but they've been around for like a decade. But they're really yeah, good. I remember the big push for that being around like 2005. Yeah, or it's a while ago. Yeah, 15 years ago is probably right. And but they're still around, and they've just been chugging along, putting out a record every two years. But they did a live album, and I've I've kind of forgot about Dungan because I like you know I, uh, other stuff took precedence. But the live album's incredible, and it sounds a lot like uh, Band of Gypsies era Hendrix, but not in an annoying way. Like just, it just, like I don't know that they're trying to achieve that sound. It just sounds like a really great old live album, even though it's not. 
And then uh, the four tets that he released, the double, the 871 in parallel are both amazing. I love four tet, always have. The more mother. I mean, the thing that I'm most excited about coming out soon is the Mad Lib Fortet. Oh, record. for sure. That's going to be so good. I love the Fortet Mad Villain remixes. I think those guys will. I mean, Fortet's a great collaborator, obviously, with Burial and anybody else. Um, there's a guy named Roland Hayes that was a musician that put out this one jazz record and disappeared. No one could find out any information about him, but they recently re released his album, and it's an incredible. It's from 1975, but it sounds like it's an incredible forward-thinking album that's like funk, jazz, rock, like all together, like years ahead of when a lot of people were doing that the way he does it uh, is incredible. And no one can even find the guy to like interview him about the record. He's like the, the jazz Lewis. <laughs> post-rock it's pretty rare for me i only buy probably five rock records a year and it's like post-rock so that's two of them right there yeah, i know i know it's unusual for me album which you can only get on Bandcamp is fucking incredible um it's hip-hop and jazz and doom all together in an incredible mix i think if they had released it wider it would have gotten more attention but they dropped it the very end of the year and you can only do it on Bandcamp. and i just think not a lot of people know it exists (laughs) 
hold space that can't be curved. Snake coil, ribcage, a dark goddess. Hallow be thy name in the belly of existence. Mystic knights of square fables, snake and man. Lamb and sacrifice, mothers of darkness. A priest without his head, council of 33 inside the dome of heaven. Under the tongue of a reverend. Yeah. Oh Lord, oh God. Don't come down, stay high. The rock cried, I can't hide you. They gon' find you. They gon' lynch you and call it suicide. Where you gonna run to? The rock cried, the rock cried. So kind of, I guess, kind of looking abstractly to the future, is there, is there something, is there anything that you'd kind of like to manifest that you'd like to move towards as you kind of enter like a new phase of your well, career? Good, I mean, in the short term, I'm just so happy that we had a, a big change in management and a whole bunch of people got fired because we had a merger. It's probably the fifth merger I've lived through. And it all, that was the AT&T Yeah, right? AT&T bought. Uh, Warner Brothers. Um, so whenever that, that kind of thing happens, there's usually like a reset. There's a creative reset. There's a reset of people. And a lot of times projects you were working on, you know, it's part of the old regimes, ideas of what was good or cool or worth spending money on and all that gets swept away. And I'm very lucky in that my new bosses don't want to do that. So I was able to do like the run the jewels, Holy Kalama vote special and, they want to keep doing singles and they want to keep doing the Adult Swim Festival and we're going to be allowed to re- keep releasing music. So, you know, it's a little bit of, I just want to keep this stuff going um, and keep doing interesting albums and sort of push into genres we haven't messed with. I would love to do a really good country compilation, which we've done a, a Squidbillies one, but that's a little different. I would like to do a, a country compilation. We did a jazz one. I'd love to do another one. Um, and those are my, my short term goals are just keep this stuff going, keep doing interesting work and getting money and exposure to musicians. And long term, I'd like to see more stuff like Holy Kalama Vote. You know, we would love to do another live performance thing that supports some sort of cause that we all want to support. Um, so that's probably the thing I want to try to manifest next. Um, and then other than that, it's, it's bringing, you know, I'm lucky enough. I brought Colin Stetson in to work on a show I'm doing called Uzumaki and it's, it's coming out incredible. And so I would like to keep doing that. I would like to take the things I've learned about music and working with artists that you wouldn't normally see work on a cartoon or an anime and bring them in to do the soundtrack and have them meet these Japanese creators and do something that, neither of them would have done if they hadn't met each other. To me, that's always the most exciting part of, of creating anything is when you see two people or three people or however many come together who normally wouldn't necessarily, and they just click and something exciting happens. Um, that happened on Uzumaki, and I, and I think people are going to be really happy. So I would love to try to do more of that because to me that's like the most exciting part of, of this work. So like your career is, I think, almost entirely unrepeatable. <laughs> but uh, to people who would have an interest in doing 
sort of what you do, uh, maybe not necessarily for TV, but just kind of to, you know, people who want to enable other talented people, like what kind of advice uh, do you have? For I them? mean, for the av for so, so there's for as far as like a career that people, what people really want to do when they talk to me besides make TV shows is they want to do music supervision. Music supervision is a very hard job to get into. It doesn't pay well. And it's really, really, rare that you can get it it's a very hard job to get like basically the people that get it are all they've been doing it forever and they're never going to stop doing it and they're all kind of people like me they're maniacs who listen to tons and tons of music all the time and constantly are sending hundreds of songs to directors and producers and whoever and it is a is way more of a hustle than i think anyone understands um but i, I so that's music supervision. But I think if you were a regular person and you wanted to support art coming together, if you couldn't do it locally in your community with people you know, then to me, I know this sounds stupid, but it's like just take the money you have that you can spend on something like this that you don't need for your own bills or loved ones and buy their music on Bandcamp or pay to see them live when we're allowed to all go you know, see people. I think people don't really understand how much it means something to a band when you actually spend money on them, whether that's seeing them live or buying their merch or buying their albums, because they don't have that many ways to make money anymore. Um, you know, they don't make money off of streams. So the only way that you can physically truly support a band and the best way is to go see them live, as you know, um, but the other way is not off the table for the foreseeable yeah, future. Yeah, no. So if you can't do that, then Bandcamp. That's what I try to do. I mean, I I do buy albums from iTunes because their rates aren't that terrible for musicians. But I try to buy more on Bandcamp because it's just you can pay what you want and the music goes right to them. I mean, there's no perfect system, but that's the best one. Um, and then otherwise, I would just say. I think people forget that if you make music for a living, I think, you know, anyone that makes art for a living, there's a whole segment of this population that feels like people who make art for a living are secretly um, getting away with something because the rest of us have to work real jobs or whatever. Um, and I think I always try to encourage people to understand that making art is work too, and that they deserve compensation for that labor, you know? Um, and, part of it is just an attitude you have when dealing with people when saying, I would love a song for this, or I would love to, could you design this logo for me friend? That's a designer. It's like, try to understand that just because that labor is created wholly by that person does not mean it didn't involve labor. <coughs> might've, might've gotten too esoteric with that. <laughs> I might've gotten too far into the hole there. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the important thing, too, is just to remember that, you know, it's community and community can be made in lots of different ways. For sure. For sure. Especially something like music, you know. Yeah. So how can people find you or, or get in touch with you? Um, I, for years, have just directed people to my Twitter account because people send me music there all the time and I do listen to it. I don't listen to it every day, but I usually will take one day a week or one day every couple of weeks and I'll go back through my mentions and anyone who linked me their music, I will try to listen to. Um, and I have 
found some artists that I've worked with that way. Um, so that's the best way to reach me, whether you have a pitch or music, is just at, at ClarkNova1 on Twitter. Um, don't email me. <laughs> I get people that email me, and I don't answer those emails because I don't want people to have my email unless I know you. Um, so, yeah, Twitter's the best way. Especially if it's music. Uh, thank you so much for coming yeah. on. It was my pleasure. I hope I didn't talk too much. I thought you did great.